So one of the things that I hear from reps a lot when I do trainings is, Jason, I already know that, right? And I hear that a ton. And, and oftentimes when I was a trainer at first, it would, that, that, that would kind of stump me, I guess, that objection, you know? And really where I try to direct you know, the conversation is, well, hey, you might know this, but are you doing it? You know, so if you're one of those reps or sales leaders and you're listening and you're like, dude, I already know like a lot of this stuff, but you're not doing it. I think you're really going to like this episode. So uh, my name is Jason Bay. Welcome to Blissful Prospecting. Uh, in this podcast, I have conversations with reps, sales leaders, and other experts to teach you how to turn complete strangers into paying customers. Today, I'm really excited for the topic. It's knowing versus doing how to close the gap. And we're talking to Jordana Zeldin and John Mann, co-founders at the Practice Lab. We're going to talk about three things today. So applying principles from successful people outside of sales. So professional athletes, actors, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, the missed opportunity of not practicing and then also like how to practice because most of us don't really get taught how to do that. Um, you guys, it's really good to have you on the show. Woo! Good to be Happy here, Jason. To be here. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> that was like that felt like an improv. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I used to do improv. <laughs> I know, I know. So uh, you want to be too boisterous? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about practice. Um, and I don't know. Let me kick this first question. Wait, your we way, talk John. about practice. Like we talking about practice, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not the game. We talking about practice. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> All right, Alan Iverson. Um, I, did you practice like your first sales job that you got? Did did they tell you about practice? Like, did you practice for the job? Like, did you think about practice? Like, what was that like for you, John? Like your first sales job. So actually, I didn't quite draw this connection until uh, I guess I guess recently. Um, yes, yeah, so my first sales job, I was I was in college. I, I hadn't gone, gone gone to college yet, right? I graduated high school, and I was working with some like nonprofit organization, going door to door, raising funds, collecting donations, right? So basically, selling people, taking their money, and giving them nothing in return, but a nice warm feeling in their belly. So that was, as you imagine, a tough gig. Um, and we would always meet at the office at like 2 p.m. each day and spend from 2 to 3 p.m. just doing practice, right? I don't remember what they called it, but literally we would just, you know, role play. All right, I'm the person at the door. You're the, you're the, the canvasser is what they called us. And we'd practice our pitch and we'd practice objections and we'd practice rebuttals. And like, that was literally an hour every single day before we went out and hit the turf. So that's where it all started. Um, I also incorporated it um, as I was in kind of like the B2B selling world as well. But yeah, my very first sales job, I was 17 years old, totally like socially awkward person, couldn't have a conversation with anybody. And I just did this sales jobs because the, the cause was something I was passionate about. And uh, yeah, it was that practice that allowed me to keep the job and survive that summer <laughs> and ultimately set me down the path of doing sales for a living. You know, it's really funny that you mentioned that because like my first sales job was going door to door also selling house painting services, but we role played a lot. And then we practiced different kind of variations of how to respond to stuff. And um, there was just a lot of practice, actually, like a ton of practice. And anytime we had to train new reps as a manager, like we would practice a lot with them, too. That's just sort of how I came up in sales. And I didn't really know that that wasn't a thing that 
I don't think a lot of B2B companies, especially software companies, really incorporate, you know? Um, what about you, Jordana? What was your first sales job like? Did you practice? Did they talk about it? What was that like? Well, I think what was so interesting was that when I joined uh, joined the team at my first sales job, like not only did we not practice, but like we never heard each other sell. So we we all technically oh. sat together in the office. You know, this was pre pre COVID, but all of our pitching happened in these like startup y phone booths, and it was this really private act, and we won privately, and we failed privately. And it wasn't until we got this really amazing brand new head of sales who was just so, he just got it. He was so emotionally intelligent. And one of the very first changes that he made was taking our selling out of our phone booths and into the sales pit. And that changed like literally everything. It was like all of a sudden we were exposed to the different ways that our teammates sold. We were exposed to their attempts and their failures and their wins. We were listening out and able to notice opportunities for improvement. We started to kind of give feedback on the fly. And just that entire culture of, in some ways, being exceedingly vulnerable, doing our jobs in front of each other for the first time um, had a really powerful impact both on, I think, our performance, our, our performance grew like something crazy, like 400% under the sales leader, but also on our culture. Like it became, it felt like a sports team, like in the best way. Yeah, that is so interesting. Cause one of the things that, I don't know if you like in your work, you know, have uh, done this at all, but I, I noticed that I learn a lot from my clients because every client kind of sets up their internal systems a little differently and they train things a little bit differently and their playbooks look a little different and they use a little bit of, of a different process to coach people. Um, as a sales trainer, sometimes I feel like I work in a, in a box where, you know, I just have my way of doing things mm -hmm. and then I'm coming to a client and presenting like that way. And like over time, I just accumulate all of these kind of best practices and I don't know, that's what it made me think of. If you're selling in isolation and you could never watch a recording or listen to someone else sell, yeah. you would only have your one perspective and your manager's perspective on how to do it. And I didn't even think about the group benefit of practicing. That's kind of it's interesting. Huge. Yeah. And I'd say, and I'm all for work from home, but when I think about new reps, you know, onboarding at remote companies, and I think about my experience and how transformative just being able to hear each other, being in the same room at the same time, um, you know, had on me, I do, I do think there's a little bit of a loss there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the practice lab. I want to kind of get to it. Um, how did you guys come up with this idea? Where did it come from? I know there's a lot of inspiration gathered from outside of sales, but how did this get started? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. So the practice lab, um, you know, I mentioned I'd done some practicing, you know, in, in my career, but you know, never anything structured. So the practice lab was born um, when I started at a company called Security Scorecard. So I was a sales rep there. I started and I went through their onboarding. And kind of my, my daily schedule for the first 30 days was pretty similar. In the morning, I'd be watching training videos, reading through training materials, stuff of that nature. And I can say this company was training us on the right stuff, right? The right questions to ask, the right behaviors to implement, the right goal for each call, and et cetera. And I was like, this is great. Yep, this is totally aligned with what I found works, also with how I've been trained. Really solid onboarding program. Then I'd have lunch. 
And then after lunch, the first thing I'd do is I'd go for a walk and I'd listen to recordings through the Gong app uh, of my peers' sales calls. And right away, I noticed this massive yawning chasm, this gap between what I was being taught and what people were actually doing on real sales calls. Like, I don't think I ever was listening to recording and when I talked to myself, there we go, there's that behavior we were trained on. It was the opposite. Every time I'd be like, what are they doing? I thought they were trained on the same stuff I was trained on. So it was this big, big, you know, compare and contrast between what we were trained to do and what people were actually doing. And I very quickly realized it's the same with myself, right? You know, I've read, you know, uh, uh, gap selling plenty of times. I've read spin selling plenty of times, right? But if, if you watch my calls, you weren't going to see a whole lot of those behaviors and a whole lot of those questions showing up. So I realized that there's a really big gap between knowing something that you should be doing and actually having the skills needed to pull it off in a real conversation. And to round it all off in the evenings, I was listening to a book called Peak and later a book called The Talent Code. And both those books are by researchers who have spent decades studying top performers in a variety of industries, from improv to acting to music to sports to gymnastics. And in these books, they talk about what it takes for human beings to reach the top levels of achievement in their disciplines. And in every other performance-based discipline, there's this real strong focus on practice, on deliberate practice, on taking the whole performance, breaking it down into its component parts, figuring out what skills are needed to do well in those sections, those pieces, and drilling and rehearsing and practicing those specific skills over and over until mastery is gained. And then when a performance comes, you can execute you know, very well, if not flawlessly, um, because you spent all that time in advance preparing and practicing and honing the skills. And that's how those disciplines close the gap between knowing and doing is through deliberate practice and a focus on improving skills rather than just, you know, gaining knowledge. And so I'd read those book in the evenings. And then again, I would go back the next morning and see this gap between what we're being trained and what we're doing. And I kept thinking to myself, well, what in the world? Why is the sales profession not keying into what every other discipline knows, which is you got to focus on skill development and you got to focus on practice. So I needed to have a way to practice. And I was like, oh, well, I can't do this on my own, right? I can do a lot of things on my own. I can't practice a conversation on my own. I need more people. So I literally just started rolling it out to my colleagues and peers at the company saying, hey, do you want to come practice with me? Then after that, I had even more appetite for it. So I rolled it out to like my LinkedIn network. And that's when I brought Jordana involved to really up-level the program and make it even better. And you know, one thing led to another. And Jordana was the one who really had the clear vision to say, hey, wait a minute, we shouldn't just do this random little side project on Tuesday mornings. We should really make this a real offering for the world. Um, and you know, we've kind of been on this slow but steady journey ever since of taking this idea of practice and developing a program for salespeople around it. But it literally started as something I needed. It wasn't out there. So I just started doing it myself because <laughs> it needed to happen. What was the response like internally at your company when you asked people to practice? Were people kind of like, why would I do that? Or were people pretty eager to do it? So I first asked like six peers of mine, we had all started at the same time. At this point, we had all been there about a month and we were like kind of wrapping up onboarding and starting to, you know, uh, get out there and have real sales conversations. Um, and they were actually very, very eager to practice. Um, I'd say of the six of them, probably four of them, if not five of them showed up pretty regularly. Um, and then once my manager heard what we were doing, he thought it was great and kind of, you know, asked me to open it up to the rest of the sales team. Um, and for the, for the more senior folks, yeah, maybe half or a third of them tried it out, half or a third of them didn't bother. Um, but yeah, the, the folks who were just starting, you know, as is usual, had a lot of hunger and appetite for improvement. So it was actually pretty well received with those folks. 
And I find that it's very similar with the folks that I work with, uh, even across companies who, you know, not all of them opted in for me to come in and train them. But most people seem really eager to get their hands on stuff that's going to be better and to find a way to work with another individual and practice that. People seem pretty eager, you know, do you guys sort of look at this? I mean, you guys are helping the individuals, right? And companies can pay from what I understand to, you know, have a rep in the program, let's say, but do you find that this is a problem that most companies have where they don't really foster an environment like this, where people can actually practice and facilitate these kinds of things? Yeah, I think there are, there are a few things at play. One, I think, is that, you know, as we talked about earlier on in the conversation, in the SaaS world, practice isn't really the status quo way of developing skills. It's usually passive sit-in-your-seat training and then the expectation that somehow you'll you'll do the thing. Um, the other challenge, I think, is that for people who, for leaders who are excited about the idea of practicing, I do think that it can be a little tricky to understand how to most effectively practice selling. Um, and that's where, where Jonathan and I take a lot of our cues from how athletes and, and musicians kind of chunk it down into bite-sized pieces and, and, you know, build awareness around specific, almost like micro behaviors, things that you can do in practice that when you put them together, um, make for greater effectiveness. But then the other thing that 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 Jonathan and I are really aware of is that practicing isn't for everybody. Like not everybody is going to be game to develop their skills in this way because it does require vulnerability. It does require kind of pushing up against the limits of your current abilities, which is inherently just uncomfortable. And I think that on the one hand, sales as an industry can do a better job at at creating the kind of psychological safety required to get uncomfortable in service of learning. But one of the reasons that in the practice lab, we're not working with teams that then have to require that their sellers participate is just our understanding that not everybody is going to want to practice. But for the people who do, they can opt into the program. And those are the people who are going to experience the most growth because they want to be there. And then for teams that are paying, it's on those individuals that they're going to experience the greatest ROI because those people want to be there. So, you know, though we can all agree that practice builds skill, this project is not uh, grounded in the idea that every single human being wants to and, you know, has to practice in order to develop in the way that they want to. Yeah. Well, let's talk about practice. So let's talk about what it is. So I think a lot, there's a big misconception that practice is just role-playing. You guys have really opened my eyes up in this area too. Um, like, yeah, Hey, yeah, I, I practice, I, I role play every now and then, you know, with my manager in a one-on-one, I mean, yeah, sure. I practice, you know, um, I guess that's a type of practice that you could do. Right. But what is practice? What are some of the things that, you know, some of these professions outside of sales, like what are they doing to get this deliberate practice? Like what, what is that? What is practice? Yeah. I mean, Role play certainly has a place, right? We do some of that in the practice lab. In particular, role play can be really effective when you're practicing a more predictable part of the sales journey. Um, for example, right? I'm sure you guys are this now bound squad. You can role play a cold call opener pretty easily. All you need is your partner to say hello, and then you'd practice your cold call opener. It's pretty predictable, right? After that, it can get kind of crazy, but the opener is very predictable. Um, you know, we even have an exercise around how you handle common objections. 
you know, you can pretty well bet that, you know, on half your sales, you're going to hear the words, uh, you know, the timing isn't quite right. And how you respond when you hear that, you can actually practice it. It's not a script, but you can practice it. Um, however, what we learn from other disciplines, though, is that it does go beyond that, right? It goes beyond just when I when A happens, I respond with B, because, of course, many other disciplines are also not predictable, right? Improv comedians clearly aren't following a script. Martial artists aren't following a pre-rehearsed set of moves, right? There are a lot of environments where you need to respond quickly to what's going on. It's an impractical environment. In those cases, you want to focus on just building the core underlying skill and really enhancing the brain, right? For, for, for a lot of this, I like to just think of the brain as any other organ of the body, right? Where you can enhance its ability and that ability that you just uh, enhance can be used across different functions. You know, of course, a great example of this is, you know, if you look at football players train in the gym, there's a lot of them lifting heavy bars over their chest. I don't watch a lot of football, but I can tell you never on a football game does anybody lift a heavy bar over their chest. So why are they doing that? Well, of course, it's because those pectoral muscles can be used for a lot of things. Yeah. So similarly, the brain, if you enhance yeah. it to make it a more responsive, more agile, more quick thinking, more connected, more intelligent, powerful brain, you can use that brain for a lot of different things. So a lot of what we do is we train salespeople's brains outside the context of selling. We're really honing in on elements of empathy and especially elements of curiosity. Trusting and knowing that having a brain that's more curious, that's better at connecting the dots, that's better at listening, that's better at formulating questions, even if you learn that skill outside the context of selling, you can take that brain, put it in a sales conversation, and it's going to do better, right? So we're very big on figuring out, okay, what do salespeople's brains have to be good at? And how do we develop those skills? It doesn't have to be in a sales context. It certainly doesn't have to be a role play. Yeah, I found that because just because I've gone through a lot of therapy, I find that having done that work, it's made me so much better at selling and content creation. Like mm. basic empathy, for example, it's not that I didn't have it. I just didn't really know how to do it on purpose. You know what I mean? I never really, this is like maybe three years ago, you know, maybe three or four, four years ago now, maybe, um, where I was like, oh, I've never sat down and actually labeled my emotions outside of, oh, you're angry right now, or you're sad, or you're happy. Like outside of that, that was basically it. That was all I really thought about. And what it made me do is, because I couldn't even identify my own emotions, I had trouble understanding how someone else was feeling and where they might be coming from. I don't know how I sold, honestly, before realizing this. I was really good at following scripts and you know, uh, patterns and, you know, principles of stuff, but I wasn't really on purpose, at least creating very much of a connection, you know, with another person. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense when you think about it like that, the weightlifting analogy. And when you say pectoral muscles, I don't know, that's just funny to me. <laughs> I got to chuckle out of that. But um, it makes a lot of sense that, yeah, you think about the stuff that you do in the weight room, like you're training, I play basketball. I mean, like just little drills where you just would be sitting there dribbling the ball. You would never do it like that in a game, but it helps for those situations. It creates this kind of like almost muscle memory, I guess. But um, yeah, so for in Dana, that case, how right, do you you're... think about, you know, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was, was going to say, yeah, in that case, right, what you're doing is you're strengthening the neural connections between your hands and your brain, right? Like literally on a physiological level, you're creating more ties, stronger ties. You're wrapping the existing neurons between your hands and your brain and myelin, which is a substance that speeds up processing. So yeah, when you're doing those dribble exercises, 
Of course, you're never going to do that in a game, but you're strengthening the neural connections between your hand and your brain. So similarly, when you're doing an empathy exercise to increase your empathy skills, you're strengthening the connections between your emotional brain, your logical processing brain, and your listening brain. You're actually, again, rewiring the brain to be better at picking up on human emotions. You can do that outside of sales context. It doesn't have to be sales for you to learn emotion and for you to rewire your brain that way. I love that. Jordana, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I was just going to add too that something that's a little different about how we think about practice in the lab versus, say, your typical role play relates to the pace in which we allow people to practice. Mm. You know, typically in your average sales role play, like you're just, it's real time, game time, right? You're the person playing your prospect says something, you're expected to respond in real time. But what's missing if you're role playing in real time is that critical point in practice is like if you're a musician or, or, or an athlete to kind of build awareness of the various choices that you have, consider them all and then deliberately make a choice uh, towards the new behavior. So like, you know, as Jonathan mentioned with objection handling, you know, the typical instinct upon hearing an objection, usually I find with sellers is to immediately rebut, right? And say the thing that they've rehearsed in their company to try to change their mind. Of course, we know that's a totally ineffective way to respond, right? Because our prospect's resistance is really high and their receptivity is low. And no matter what you say, even if it's the the greatest, most polished rehearsed line, that's not the moment where you're going to change a mind, right? So if you just role play your typical objection scenario in real time, your instinct's going to kick into rebut and, and there you are back in the old grooves, right? But in the practice lab, because we teach a different pathway for sellers to follow and encourage them to really slow down, they hear that objection and then there's that opportunity without any pressure to just think through, okay, what's the framework I've just learned? What do I want to say, Right. They can try it on for size. We start by um, welcoming an objection, you know, connecting with a beat of gratitude and then expressing genuine appreciation that they were honest and transparent and said that was on their mind, right? That's a new way of approaching objections for most sellers. So that little beat of just being like, all right, what was I supposed to do here? I'm supposed to welcome. And then trying it on for size and then being like, you know what? That didn't feel genuine. I'm going to go back, rewind the tape and do it again. That's what puts sellers into the kind of deep practice that allows them to understand their old behavior, the new pathway, and then to make a different choice so that they are rewiring their, you know, the, neuro, the neurocircuitry in their brain, but also just creating new habit so that when we speed things up, come game time on the phone with an actual prospect, they'll make that choice. So that's another really fundamental difference, too, about how we approach practice and think about it. So. If we could, let's use objection handling. And it sounds like you're using that in a sales context. Let's use that as an example. So how would you guys like break this apart? And what are some examples of how you would help reps practice this? Yeah. John, do you want to take that one? Oh, no, that's you, Jordana. You came up with the framework to begin with. So I think you'll probably explain it better than <laughs> <Okay>. I would. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Sounds good. So... So with objection handling, yeah, we practice this in a, in a sales context and we typically practice it with, say, the six most, most common objections that are going to come up on, you know, for any seller, regardless of their specific product, right? So that, so that has universal application. And the first step that we teach is literally a quiet two-second beat of gratitude to connect with that in your own body that the person 
told you what was on their mind rather than ghosted you, right? Or, or nodded and smiled and then hung up the phone and you ended up chasing them into the void, right? <laughs> so the first step isn't even verbal. <laughs> Just like actually appreciate that you're about to open the door to an honest conversation with this person. The second step is to, you know, we call it welcome, is to express gratitude that they spoke up at all, right? Or that they were transparent or that, you know, they shared what was on their mind. That's really important. And it's important for a couple of reasons, one of which is that it's the last thing that our prospects are expecting at the moment of objection. And a big part of what we want to do through the objection handling process is to disarm our prospect emotionally so that they are more receptive to what we have to share when we have to share it. And that's why we don't respond right in the moment with the counterpunch, right? So it's welcome. Then the second part, uh, step of the framework that we like to encourage is what we call empathize, not validate, but empathize. And it's a bit of a, a tricky line to toe. Um, you know, oftentimes when I, I hop around to practice rooms in the lab, people, let's say if, if uh, you know, the, the objection is it's too expensive, sometimes sellers in their best uh, attempt to, to empathize might say something like, yeah, you know, we hear that a lot. That's a little dangerous, I think. To yeah. That's more of a validation than an empathy statement. But instead, what we really encourage sellers to do is to empathize with their prospect in the context of the purchase, uh, the, the decision, the, the process of making a decision about a purchase. So rather than saying, yeah, you know, a lot of our, our the people that we're talking to are telling us it's expensive too, which is validating. Instead, we, we encourage people to say something like, look, I'm, you know, thank you so much for, you know, for sharing that. And look, I know how important it is when you're making a decision like this, that the price feels right. You're putting yourself in the shoes of your prospect and acknowledging that, yeah, price is going to be important, you know, when, when making a, a choice like this. Further disarming them, right? And then the third step is around asking some questions. We call it understand, like <laughs> you, with genuine curiosity, right? You've got to ask some questions so that you can better understand what's really going on so that when the eventual time comes to respond, you're able to calibrate your response in a way that actually lands with, what, with what's going on in the organization. Because all too often, sellers will make assumptions about what the price is too high means or we don't have budget or we're thinking about going with a competitor in absence of curiosity. And then when they respond, they really miss the mark. So there are more steps to this framework, but and, and we cover it over the course of two labs. But the first three crucial steps, if sellers do literally nothing else, is to welcome, empathize, ask some questions to, to gain deeper understanding. Yeah, I love the framework. So how do you how do you how do you practice that? What does that end up looking like in execution? How do you break something like that apart? How do you practice it? Yeah, so um, we'll have people go into breakout rooms with a partner. We have this like uh, kind of randomized picker wheel with like the most six common objections on it. And people with their partner will spin the wheel. It'll give an objection and they'll voice an objection to their partner, yeah. such as we have other priorities right now, or let's circle back at the end of the year, right? Things that we all hear. Um, and then the, the seller is instructed to just, again, take a beat, let the silence sit, think and then walk through these steps. Um, usually the way we do it though, because because the, you know, the, the, the framework has a handful of steps, we'll actually teach it uh, 
one or two steps at a time, right? We'll say, okay, folks, for your first breakout round, you're just doing the first two steps, right? Just welcome it, empathize with it, and then you're done. And then it's their turn and they go and then back and forth, right? So they'll spend maybe 15 minutes in a breakout room. They'll each get half a dozen tries at least to go through that motion of hearing the objection, taking that beat, finding the gratitude in themselves, voicing that gratitude verbally, and then empathizing with it. And then that's it. And then we'll come back to breakout room. We'll discuss a little more. We'll see what people are, you know, thinking in the main session. And then we'll throw them back into breakout rooms again. And this time they're going to practice, you know, steps one through three, right? And then they'll spend 15 minutes trying all three steps on for size. And, you know, by the end of it, right, people are going through a six-step process that sounds up front like it's going to be a whole lot and no one could ever remember that. But by the end of the second week, most people are able to go through a six-step process pretty easily, right? Because again, it's, it's, it's been so ingrained in them. And in fact, this is one of those labs that in this last cohort, we had a couple of great success stories pretty much right away, right? Maybe within a week or so mm. of the lab happening, people were reporting back saying, oh my goodness, I just tried this and holy crap, the kind of conversation I just had is different than anything I've ever had before, right? Like yeah. literally the modem of the objection was like the opening point for the conversation starting rather than being the closing point for when things came to an end because they went through this framework. Yeah. I love that. So a big part of it, it sounds like for you guys, I do something kind of similar when I teach cold calling where it's like, let's not just unpack the entire framework and then have you role play the entire cold call from start to finish. Right. Like, let's break it up. There's like an intro here where you're going to do a permission based yeah. opener and then you're going to do a priority drop. And let's just like get that part down. Bam, 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 role play, role play, role play. Yeah. And then kind of breaking down the middle part. Right. Um, so it sounds like a key part of this for people listening that they can take away is how could I kind of chunk the steps a bit? Mm -hmm. And just like in basketball, <laughs> you know, I always go back to basketball, like, because the sport that I played, like chunking apart the different parts of the game on offense. Like I don't practice shooting, dribbling and passing all at the same time. <laughs> like that would be really inefficient to practice in it in that way, you know, and it's the same kind of thing here. You know, and, and just building off that, Jason, like I think what's really empowering about breaking it down and developing awareness of each of the components is then you can get off your call and point to the specific things that you did that got you specific results or the certain, yeah. the, the certain specific behavior that you kind of missed or fumbled that you know you can do better in your next call to get a specific result. And that's really empowering because like for most sellers, and I, when I think about me early on in my sales career, like I would get off a call. I'd be like, woohoo, that went amazing. I have literally no idea what I did. I hope I can pull off that magic again, right? And that's a yeah. really, really hard and, and frustrating way to live your professional life, right? It's very hard to know what great sounds like. It's very hard to know what you're aiming for. And it can feel really hard to, to feel that, that kind of control of your own skill development and improvement. So whether or not, you know, you're in the lab or outside of the lab, I cannot recommend enough this process of like breaking it down, identifying the components, understanding kind of like what levers you can pull in each component for what effect in service of having a greater understanding of how they all come together to make you more effective. Yeah. Not to mention the, and you sort of alluded to this, the confidence that you get from practicing Huge. and when you've drilled something yeah. hundreds of times it's uh, i always joke about this and we talked about it but reps most of the reps that i 
like end up coming into contact with these companies, the first time they practice something is in a live setting on a prospect where the stakes are extremely high. You know, the stakes are so high when you do this in a live setting on a prospect where I get a cold call you might get to redo over again next quarter or in a month or two, depending how long it lasted. It could be a couple of days, you know, Um, a sales call. You don't really get an opportunity to redo a botched sales call. Like that person's Mm -hmm. not going to take another sales call with you so you can mess up again. You know, that's extremely high stakes when you think about it. Well, I also think that's too, like it's, oh, sorry, Jonathan, go ahead. (laughs) Um, On on that note of of the high stakes, that's actually really important. And the confidence piece is really important because physiologically, when a brain is in a stressful state and a high emotion state and a fear-based state, right, there are physiological changes that happen in the brain. One of those changes is that there's less blood flow going to the frontal cortex where you do your most complex thinking, right? And that, of course, is terrible. Like in a sales call, you need every bit of brain power you have access to, but physiologically, blood flow just drains away. There's less oxygen. This stuff slows down, right? And when you have the confidence of having practiced something, you don't get that same fear response. When you hear a prospect say, hey, we're going to wait till next year, it doesn't phase you. You're like, hey, I got this, right? So not only you know have you practiced and you have this extra knowledge, but like just physiologically, you now have an advantage in your brain that your brain doesn't go into fear mode because you've heard those words repeated so many times over the last two weeks that those words don't scare you anymore, right? And additionally, you know, you mentioned practicing on prospects, right? One of the reasons why that's a terrible idea is that for a practice to be effective, you really need to make new choices. You need to make different choices. You need to not get pulled into the the grooves or the ruts of the most common behavior. However, when a brain is in a high emotion, high stress, high stakes situation, it has a really, really, really hard time choosing new paths. Typically, a brain under stress just goes to its defaults, right? And to what it's always done before. So it's, again, going against your brain's wiring and your to think that you can try out a new behavior in a high stakes environment. That's just not how it works. You have to try new behaviors in low stakes environment because that's how the brain actually works. That in low stakes environment, your brain is pretty good at choosing new paths, choosing new behaviors, doing things differently. But under pressure, the brain just defaults to what it does best. So the idea is that in low stakes environments, you dig these grooves, right? You dig these new grooves, these new processes, these new talk tracks to the point where they become very familiar so that when you're in a high stress environment, they are available to you to say, hey, I want to go down this other track this time. And that track is already laid out waiting for you because again, you practice it so often. So it truly goes against our brain's physiology to think that you can effectively practice on a sales call in a high stakes environment. I love that. Jordana, you were going to add something earlier. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the, the sales training industry is like, what, like $22 billion or something. But I think one of the reasons that behaviors don't change separate from, you know, how our, how our brain is wired is just, it's really friggin' scary to take something that you've learned in a training and then try it on your prospect for the first time, right? It's so much safer. It's so much easier to just do as you've always done. So I think just from a, from a confidence perspective, knowing that you've gotten in those reps and that at, those at-bats and, you know, maybe you went through all the steps, Jason, let's say of objection handling and your understand questions, the first few you asked in practice didn't feel right. Like maybe they felt like they were serving you rather than your prospect. Maybe they felt like uh, you were asking questions to already prematurely try to change someone's mind rather than digging in just with genuine curiosity about what's going on in your prospect's world. Like you can fail, quote unquote, fail with your questions in practice over the first few rounds. 
have your partner tell you, you know, yeah, those questions really, they felt more like they were about you than about us. Like, let's see if we can come up with some others so that you're not having to come up with really high quality questions or to execute a new behavior that you've learned beautifully on the fly on your prospect in absence of that foundation of working it out in practice. So that's another really beneficial uh, reason to get those at-bats in, not on your prospect. Yep. I can't believe I ever used to train companies without having some sort of breakout room type of feature during the training session. You know what I mean? I used to do six weeks, two one-hour training calls with the team each week. And we talked about cold calling. I just would teach them about cold calling and they would never actually, you know, I think like the workshop type environment, I think is really powerful, like that style of teaching. Because in a workshop, you don't just talk at people for four hours. Like you talk about something for 20 minutes and then you have people do the thing and practice it, you know? Um, I I couldn't imagine doing it like that right now, (laughs) you know? Like I said, you guys have been sort of a big inspiration for that. It really made me think. I was like, like, fuck, dude, this is such a big ask if you think about it. I'm going to ask you to completely change how you cold call. And then Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, go have fun doing that and report back to me how it goes. To expect someone to learn something that is a complete 180 from what they're doing right now and then to have the confidence to to just do that on a prospect live with no practice, it's an unreasonable expectation, actually. I think it's completely unreasonable. Throwing them into the lion's den. Yeah, it's brutal, yeah, I think. You know? um, yeah, I think that but, you know, also um, <laughs> what we see happening all the time is that people will learn something. They'll try it out for the very first time on a call with a prospect. Since it's their very first time doing it, they don't do a great job of it. It doesn't get them good results. And they conclude this actually isn't a good behavior. That's so strange. Nobody's talking about. Right. And it's like, well, of course it didn't work the first time those words ever left your lips. Come on, right? So, you know, it even makes you as a sales trainer look like your advice is no good because they tried it and it didn't work. So then they kind of conclude that they should just keep doing what they've always done. Yeah. No, absolutely. I want to make sure before we run out of time, you guys mentioned something about how you can practice something outside of the context of selling. You mentioned curiosity, you know, empathy. If we could focus on those two things, what are some ways that you guys help people practice some of these really important skills outside of the context of selling? So that I'm guessing it integrates more. It's kind of like, how do you integrate something into your life instead of just how you sell, you know, kind of thing. Um, so how do you guys think about that? How do, how do you guys think about practicing you know, stuff like being curious, being empathetic, that sort of thing? So a couple of our exercises are structured pretty similarly where we have people pair up with their, process, their partners, right, who are members of the lab along with them. And we give them kind of a, I guess, a framework of the type of conversation they should have with each other. Um, but it, again, it has nothing to do with selling. So maybe in one exercise, we'll say, hey, have a conversation with your partner around a change they want to make in their life. But as you're having this conversation, make sure you learn what the barriers are that are making them not have this change. What are the negative consequences of not making a change? What's the gap between their life today and their life if they did make the change, right? What would be some of the barriers they might face if they started to go forward? We just kind of give the people a rough outline of, hey, learn these things while you're in that conversation. Because of course, as salespeople, those are the general buckets of information that we're trying to gather too, right? What is the gap between current state and future state? You know, what are the the benefits of making this change? What happens if you do nothing? So it's the same types of questions, the same types of information. And again, it's the same 
mental muscle of curiosity of hearing what they're saying, listening to it, and then coming up with some question to kind of take the conversation deeper. But, but again, it has nothing to do with selling. You're talking to your partner about the fact that they want to learn how to speak Spanish or something, right? And you're just leaning into that curiosity of yeah. asking, I wonder why. I wonder what's getting in the way. I wonder what would happen if they did make that change. Why is that so important to them, right? And it's just this this, this mental this mental muscle, right, of empathy and curiosity. And again, it's just kind of a guided conversation we set people up with, but there's no role-playing. People are being their true selves, speaking as their true selves to each other. I get that. I bet that's so powerful to get people to see the connection because that's what I'm always trying to do is there's a connection between your personal life and your professional life. They oh, yeah. are so much more similar than they are different. And if you can identify those same emotions and do the same thing in a professional context, it's it's actually easier, I think, in a professional context than a personal context. You know, because most of the time in your personal life, you have there, it's just it's just so much deeper and there's so much history you have with people in your life that there's just other shit usually that gets in the way of stuff. But um, go ahead, Jordan. It looked like you were going to say something. No, well, I was just going to say too, that when the change that people want to make is really important to them, right. And they're, and they're willing to get vulnerable with their partner and, and share a little bit why that is, that sparks a genuine interest and curiosity to know more and to give sellers like a, a place where they can get conscious about what it feels like to be curious in the context of quote unquote discovery is really powerful because usually what sellers say is, oh my God, my, my discovery calls feel nothing like this. And then they try to integrate more of that, that curiosity fueled feeling into their disco calls. And they do feel different, right? But it all starts with giving them an experience of what that feels like that they can then take and incorporate uh, into their selling. Yeah. And you use the word feel too. I think it is a physical feeling. It like, is. You know, curiosity there's this really good i'll have to send it over to you guys i think it's fast company had an article where it was a heat map of a person's body and it was a heat map based on the emotion so for example sadness loneliness i don't know about you guys my chest gets tight if i'm sad right or, or lonely and it showed that your actual like your body responds physically you know to these emotions and it was kind of interesting to see that because if you start to pick up on these cues yourself you start to like, I can hear this thing, but I pay attention to my physical cues to know like what I'm actually feeling. You know what I mean? And feeling empathy, you know, for someone like that's a physical thing that once you feel it, you're like, oh, I know that's the thing that I'm going for is that like understanding, you know, um, it's pretty interesting. I could talk to you guys about this for another hour. I want to make, <laughs> make sure we have time to wrap up here. <laughs> um, Let's uh let's throw some rapid fire questions your way. We'll have a little bit of fun with this one. Um, Jonathan, I'll kick the first one over your way. Um, so think about from a prospecting lens, if you had to choose between phone, email, and social, uh, what do you pick and why? Ooh. <laughs> um I think my preference is social. Um, I don't necessarily think it's always the fastest route, but it's just what feels best to me and kind of how I want to build, you know, our, our practice life business going forward, right? You start with the relationship first and then bring in the sales later. If, you know, if someone said, hey, John, I got 90 days to drum up as much pipeline as possible, I'd do the phone. Um, that tends to be the, the fastest road to results. But um, you know, when I think about building the practice lab, a sustainable business that I, you know, will, will feed my family for years, um, I kind of want to build it on the back of, of social is what feels better to me. Jordana, what about you? 
I would actually just totally plus one, plus one that. Yeah, there's something like I really enjoyed and probably, and I don't co-call for, for um, my, my sales training consultancy, but there's something that I loved about cold calling and there's something so like risky and fun and experimental like about doing it, you know, that I love. But I agree. I mean, my entire network, professional network over the last couple of years has been built from creating genuine relationships on social. So that would be my pick any day of the week. All right, John, back to you. What is something you believe about sales that most would disagree with? I believe salespeople should not have variable heavy compensation plans. I think it should be like 90% base, 10% variable or 80-20 or something like that rather than oh, wow. the traditional you know, 50-50 we see out there. God, that's another thing yes, we that can is talk about for an hour. Episode right Jordana, what, about- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what about you, Jordana? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jason, I'm all about like, you know, the the human side of things. And I think that you know, people like us and, and there's, there's like a movement towards understanding that the qualities that make for great human relationships are the ones that make for good selling. But I wouldn't say that that's something that everybody would agree with when they think about the word sales or the image of a salesperson. Um, so, you know, John and I often talk about this, but like, if the sales technique that you're learning, you wouldn't feel comfortable using on like a family member or a friend, (laughs) It's probably not very good on a human to human level. So yeah, that would be mine. Love it. Got one more quick one for you guys. John, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself as a rookie sales professional? Hmm. Um, obviously, the practice piece, it seems like that goes without saying with, with our conversation for the last hour, right? Rookie John should definitely have practiced more. But the other piece I would encourage him is to really take his whole sales career more seriously and invest more in himself, even down to the level of like exercise and sleep and especially eating. Like when I used to eat crap for lunch, my afternoons, I had so much brain fog, I was good for nothing. Now that I'm eating clean anti-inflammatory foods, shoot, 4 to 5 p.m. is my best hour, right? I got the least distractions. My brain is as sharp as it was at 9 a.m. So like think about how a professional athlete treats their body and themselves and try to adopt that mentality in sales. Of course, practice is a part of that. But again, other things like mental health and physical health are part of that too. Rodana? Hmm, that's that's a good one. Yeah, these are really great questions, Jason. Jason, um, I would say that I think early on, I wasn't that excited about selling because I didn't understand it to be like the playground that I've come to discover it to be for investigating and thinking Mm -hmm. about and developing skills that are just so interesting from like a human relationship standpoint. Like I really saw it as like early, early on, like I do this, I get X amount of dollars and, you know, gain X amount of commission. And it it wasn't inspiring for me until I started to recognize like all the coolest stuff about human beings and human relationships and psychology is so alive and well in this field. And I think that's what's, what's kept me here and makes me feel like there's still so much to explore within it. So that would be mine. Love it. You guys, this is great. Before you two take off, tell us about the practice lab. You're about oh, to you launch a new CTA, cohort. Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where, where can people go to check it out? All that kind of stuff before you guys take off. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, so the practice lab, you know, you learned a lot about from this episode, but it is a, it's a cohort-based program for salespeople where every single week you get to spend time in get involved in deliberate practice, focusing on specific micro behaviors, right? Some of them on the early side of things, like how you open calls, how you do discovery, some in the middle parts of the sales cycle and how you present your solutions and how you do demos, even on to the end of the sales cycle and how you handle yourself during negotiations and stuff. So we, uh, this is a cohort-based um offering uh, the next cohort is going to be launching in July of 2022. So if you're listening to this episode in June, there's still time to apply. Um, you can do that at thepracticelab.co. Uh, .com is totally different, takes you somewhere else. So thepracticelab.co is what you want. Uh, of course, you know, Jordana and I follow us on LinkedIn. We have a LinkedIn page with the Practice Lab too, but really the best place to learn more about us and to even submit an application is thepracticelab.co.